Well, good morning, Village Church. My name is Matt Bowman, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Village Church, and I'm excited to welcome you this morning as we're looking at Acts 2. We're continuing our series in Acts that we've entitled The Church Alive, and this morning we're going to be looking at a very familiar passage, the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now, the problem with familiar stories is that we think we know them, and I'm sure that in some sense we do. We've heard this story quite a bit. It's kind of like the Christmas story at Christmas each year, the birth of Jesus. We think we know it, right, because we hear it so often. And I think in some sense we do know quite a bit about this text, but hopefully reading a familiar passage like this doesn't make us passive when looking at it because we think we know it. So I guess my job this morning is hopefully allow us to look at this passage in a fresh way so that we don't just look at what God did in the past but we're able to see what God is still doing through His Spirit today. So let's begin by looking at chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The disciples, probably the 120 people that were described in chapter 1, are all gathered together in this large place. Today we celebrate the Christian holiday of Pentecost, where God gave the Holy Spirit to His church. But it's important to know that they were gathered together for the festival of Pentecost that was a Jewish holiday long before it was a Christian holiday. There were three major Jewish holidays in the Jewish calendar, and the last one that we saw was Passover, when Jesus was crucified and then rose again. At these festivals, Jews were commanded to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate, and this is why we see all of these Jews from different parts of the Roman Empire gathered together in Jerusalem at one place. Sometimes Pentecost was called the Feast of First Fruits, and it celebrated the the harvest season, and the Jews were commanded to give thanks to God for another year of good harvest. In some Jewish traditions, it also celebrated the giving of the law at Sinai and the renewal of the covenant. You might think, we got to go all the way to Jerusalem for harvest? Really? Now, I grew up on an almond farm in the Central Valley. First thing I ever drove was a tractor. I was 12. For some of you, you have 12-year-olds, and that's kind of scary for some of you. But let me just tell you that harvest is a big deal. It's a really big deal because everything that you do up to that point of the year is all leading up to that season. And you can tell by how much your nation is going to be blessed for the coming year based on harvest. And especially in this society when harvest was linked to the amount of food that you were going to have for the rest of the year. And it was also a gauge of God's favor on the Jewish nation. Often when Israel strayed from the commands of God, what do we see happening in the Old Testament? God sends famine on them. And so, when God gives blessing through the harvest, it's definitely time to celebrate. This is why we see all the Jews together in Jerusalem in one place at one time. Verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues 
as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here we have the promise of Jesus fulfilled. Back in Acts 1.8, which is really like the thesis statement of the entire book of Acts, Jesus promised, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This was the very last thing that Jesus told his disciples before he was taken up. This promise of the Spirit, which would endow them with power, and it would enable them to be his witnesses in the close parts of Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. And for the rest of the book of Acts, what you see is the outworking of this power, where the apostles are endowed with the Spirit, and they can now go to the nations, and they can make disciples as Jesus commanded them. This brings us to our first big idea this morning. Without the Holy Spirit, our kingdom work will be ineffective. Notice that these disciples had three years of training with Jesus. They had seen his miracles. They had been taught by him, and they had seen him crucified, resurrected, and ascended. They didn't need any more training to fulfill his commands. But they still lacked one thing. They lacked the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Kingdom work requires this power in order to achieve lasting impact and results. A question I have for you this morning is, have you been relying on the Holy Spirit for your kingdom work, or are you solely relying on your own efforts? The disciples they were still hanging out in a house or in a courtyard because they knew that they didn't have the power to do everything that Jesus had commanded them. They couldn't bring about lasting kingdom work without the Holy Spirit. And Jesus knew this, which is why he promised that he would send his Spirit to be with them. All this work that we do for the kingdom is the result of the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. Theologian John Stott said, as a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. We're told in verse 2 that this sound came from heaven like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house. Where have you heard that before? I think one of the most important tools that when you're reading your Bible, whether it's in your Bible reading plan or in a Bible study or whenever you open up your Bible, I think it's important to ask really good questions when you're reading. And I think one of the best questions that we can ask is, where have I heard that before? Because the ancient people, they didn't always spell it out for you, did they? Sometimes you have to work. Sometimes you have to ask good questions and dig in to get at what they are talking about. Very often, Luke makes allusions to things without necessarily quoting them, so the, the astute reader can make all of these connections. And this is one of those places that he does that. Luke was a Greek Gentile and understandably has a lot of Greek content in his writing, but he knew his Old Testament. And here he makes very careful word choices about how he describes this event. He uses the word wind in a very intentional way. 
The Hebrew word for wind is ruach, which can mean wind or breath or spirit. And it shows up in the second verse of the entire Bible. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit, the ruach of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. Just like the spirit was present at creation, the spirit is present at the new creation of God's church. We also see ruach at the exodus from Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, ruach, all night, and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall on or a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. In Exodus, the wind goes out from God's people to dry up the waters so that they can be saved from the Egyptians. In Acts 2, the wind goes into God's people to save them from death and sin. Just as the waters were divided in Exodus, now the flaming tongues of fire are divided and rests on each one of them. The wind filled the entire house where they were sitting. Just like the glory cloud in the Old Testament filled the temple, like in 1 Kings. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the glory cloud stayed in the house of the Lord. It stayed in the temple. But in Acts, it doesn't stay there. It not only fills the house, it fills the disciples with the Holy Spirit. With all these Old Testament allusions, Luke is saying that this event is so much better than these Old Testament counterparts. God's Spirit now will fill every believer. This is because Old Testament patterns anticipate New Testament realities. Very often in Acts, you'll see people referring back to the Old Testament to prove that Jesus was the Messiah and that he would rise from the dead. Jesus himself did this in Luke 24 on the Emmaus Road. So I think we should know our Old Testament. Jesus is promised to us there. Now, what are these tongues? Look at verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and the visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, maybe you hear this and a certain picture of tongues comes up in your head. Maybe good, maybe not so good. Maybe you had an experience at a church camp or at a previous church, and you don't quite know what to make of that. 
I would really encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul has a lot to say about the spiritual gift of tongues. And I can just summarize that quickly for you. Number one, tongues are for the building up of the church. Number two, tongues can be a private prayer language, but they should be intelligible to your mind. And number three, in the local church, a tongue should never be offered without interpretation so that all things may be kept in proper order. Again, I encourage you to read the entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, for more about this. But the last thing that I'll just say is that Paul here is talking about a different manifestation of tongues than is in Acts 2. In this context, in Acts 2, these tongues were a supernatural gift of the Spirit to speak in known languages to the Jews who were present at the Feast of First Fruits. The disciples spoke to the multitude, and each one heard in his own language. Tongues in this context are an evangelistic tool, where they heard the mighty works of God, which undoubtedly were the mighty saving acts of God in Jesus. It wasn't a miracle to bless those who were speaking. It was a miracle to bless those who were hearing. And many would be converted on that day, which is the birthday of the church. Again, a good question to ask is, where have I heard this before? Where in the Bible have you encountered like an entire long list of nations and it involved languages? Hopefully you're thinking back to Genesis chapter 10 and 11, the table of nations and the tower of Babel. In Genesis 10, we're giving a list of the generations of Noah's three sons. And I know what you're thinking. Like, you get to your Bible reading plan, and you're like, do I have to read the genealogies? Like, do I have to read about all these different places in Acts 2 where they come from? Like, those countries don't even exist today. Why, why should I even care? Well, the list of nations in Genesis 10 actually tells you some really important stuff. When you come across something like this in your Bible reading plan, I think your initial reaction might be to ignore it or to skip over it. But I just want you to remember this. Everything in your Bible is there for a reason. So rather than just skipping over it, I think a better question to ask is, why is this here? And when we compare the chapters in Genesis to Acts 2, I think the reason becomes very apparent. So what I did was I turned to another book of the Bible to try to make sense of this book. It's the very last book in the Bible. It's the book of maps. It's that book that's after Revelation, like at the very, very back of your Bible. So if you take in Genesis 10, the list, the list there's 70 nations. So if you put them on a map, this is what it looks like. And if you take kind of the center of each of the three sons of Noah and draw a circle around them, what you see is that the intersection of all three of those regions is the land of Israel. So the intersection of the known world at this time, what they're saying is that Israel is literally the center focal point of all the nations of the known world at this time. And it's this intersection point, the land of Israel, that will one day bring all these nations back together. Before they spread out, at one time they all lived in the same area and had the same language. They built a tower trying to make a name for themselves without God, and God confused their language and scattered them across the known world. There was a Jewish tradition that said that the law given at Sinai was actually given in 70 different languages. It's not in the Bible. It's in uh, a Jewish 
writing called the Talmud, said every utterance that emerged from the mouth of the Almighty divided into 70 languages. Maybe the Jews thought there was a connection there. Commenting on this episode in Genesis, Deuteronomy 32 says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, think Babel, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, but the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob, His allotted heritage. So what this passage tells us is that when God took the nations and divided them, He chose none of them. He chose one nation for Himself to be His people, the people that would come from Abraham's family. Why is this important? Why is it important with the 70 nations and the 70 languages? It's because the very next chapter after this happened, God calls Abraham. And what do we know about Abraham? It's through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So in Acts 2, here's another map of the nations mentioned at Pentecost. Now the names are different, but what do you notice? It's the same geographical area. And so in this short passage here, when you make these connections, here's what you see. Pentecost is the overcoming of Babel. God confused the languages in Genesis 11, and now He's bringing them back through His Spirit in Acts 2. He disinherited the nations in Genesis 11, and now He's reclaiming them through the gospel. So now these Jews who hear the gospel, but they will believe and return to their homelands carrying the message of Jesus. This is why Paul in the New Testament is so amazed that there are churches in all these places he's never been to. Probably because some of these same very people took the gospel, were the first people to take the gospel back to their home nations. F.F. Bruce says, the event was nothing less than the reversal of the curse of Babel. J.G. Davies says something very similar. The account of Pentecost is dependent upon the Babel account. This brings us to our second big idea. From day one, the church was multi-ethnic. It was global from the very beginning. In the Old Testament, God mostly worked through one nation. But it was through that one nation that the Messiah, Jesus, would come and eventually bless all the nations of the earth. And it was this way from the beginning. God told Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your family. Which is why Christianity today is the most diverse faith in the entire world. It's the only world faith that is not beholden to just one location or one culture or one language. And we are told that in Revelation, at the end of the ages, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The people from every language and nation will be glad and sing praises to Jesus for eternity. And we see this in the Old Testament as well. Zephaniah 3, 9 and 10 says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. 
daughters of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters or the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. Many of you speak different languages than English in this church. Some of you may not even be English native speakers. Your language is something else. Here's something I think God is telling us. God speaks your language. God speaks your language. I speak modern English. And if you speak Dutch or Persian or German or Spanish, you speak a language that's much older than modern English. But it doesn't matter. Whatever language you speak and whatever culture you were raised in, God speaks your language and has overcome all the linguistic and cultural barriers in order to call you and people like you to himself. This is why Christians support missionaries. Our church has partnered with many missionaries who are doing really great work around the world. Like Nate and Kayla, who are in a place where it's literally illegal to be a Christian. Or like Pastor Andy in Albania, who serves in a communist country that's less than 17% Christian. And can I just say, as one of your pastors, you should get on Nate and Kayla's mailing list. You should go with Dan the next time he leads a trip to Albania. You should go with X the next time that he takes a group down to Mexico, or you should go with Glenn Smith the next time he takes a group to South Africa. And you shouldn't just do this because I say so. You should do this because God wants people in Orange County to be a part of his program to reclaim the nations. At the time of Pentecost, the Feast of First Fruits had developed this tradition that um, it was the anniversary of the giving of the law through Moses. Now, there's nothing in the Bible to confirm that. It revolved around some books that the Jews were reading around this time. But even if it's not true, I think the message that the Jews would have gotten is this. You celebrate the giving of the law at this holiday, I'm going to give you the Spirit. And the giving of the Spirit is so much better than the giving of the law. Paul tells us in Romans 8, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. The giving of the Spirit is so much better than the giving of the law. You want to give thanks to God for the first fruits of the harvest? The Spirit is so much better than the first fruits of any harvest. Pentecost begins a new era in the life of the church. It ends the era of the law, and it inaugurates the era of the Spirit. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. You should actually be laughing a little bit here. This is, this is actually a joke in the Bible. I know some of you don't think the Bible has jokes. This is a joke. This episode is so bizarre that people think that they're blabbering because they got a little tipsy. And Peter responds in typical 
Peter fashion. We're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. 10 a.m.? Maybe. <laughs> not 9 a.m. But then he goes on to explain, verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here Peter quotes the Old Testament prophet Joel, chapter 2. Peter says that Joel prophesied about this day when God will pour out his spirit on all flesh, enabling them to perform miraculous signs, such as prophesying in tongues, seeing visions and dreaming prophetic dreams, which guess what? You're going to see a lot more of in Acts as we go along. The Spirit is now here and will enable the church to fulfill its mission of spreading the gospel to all people in all nations so that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this will happen to all flesh, all nations, men and women, young and old. And this brings us to our third big idea. The gospel does not distinguish using our identifying categories. Our culture makes a lot of our identifying categories today, does it not? It seems like when I read the news or I go online or new books that are coming out or all this stuff, they're spending a lot of time telling us what our identity is and how we're different from each other and how people with certain identities are oppressing or being oppressed by other people with different identities. And can I just say that finding our identities in those things first is incapable of bringing unity. All it can do is bring division, which is why the gospel makes no distinction between young and old, black and white, Asian and African, male and female. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. And everyone needs the gospel equally. God won't give you a pass on your sin because of your skin color. God won't make you repent extra because of where you were born. And what we see playing out in the book of Acts is that God will give his spirit to all kinds of people without distinction, regardless of their identifying categories. This gives the church the advantage of displaying the greatest amount of cultural and linguistic unity of any group of people in the entire world. How great is that? How much does the world need a message like that today? Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
Peter makes three claims in this section that we're going to go over. First, Peter says Jesus was a man who was attested to all these people by God based on the miracles he performed. These people in the crowd saw Jesus perform miracles or heard about them, and Jesus' miracles had a function beyond just the blessing of the people that he was healing. They served to justify his message that he was who he said he was, the Son of Man who was prophesied in the Scriptures. Second, Peter says that Jesus' death by crucifixion was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This word in the Greek, definite, means to mark out the boundaries or limits of, to define, ordain, appoint, or determine. This was not some vague plan. This was a definite plan that God determined beforehand would take place. And we see this tension between God's predetermined plan and the free agents or the free decisions of sinful men. And Peter says to them, "You crucified him." Peter here I think is maintaining a vital tension. God's sovereignty does not absolve us of our moral responsibility. Yes, God determined in advance that Jesus would die for the sins of the world, but that in no way gave a pass to the people who crucified him unjustly. And you know what Peter's going to do? He's going to call those same people who crucified Jesus to repentance and faith and be baptized. Third, Peter confirms the importance of the resurrection as a necessary part of the Christian faith. This, in fact, is the greatest miracle and mighty work that Jesus performed, which Peter began this section by talking about. Out of all the healings and miracles, the resurrection was the greatest and most important miracle of all. And Peter goes on to prove his point. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Here, Peter quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. It's a psalm of praise and confidence in God. And Peter says that this psalm was a prophecy about Jesus about how he would rise from the dead because God would not abandon his soul to Hades. Here, Hades is the translation of the Hebrew word Sheol, which is the realm of the dead in the Old Testament. But now notice how Peter interprets this psalm in light of Jesus' resurrection. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he, he, he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter says that David couldn't have been writing this about himself because he in fact died and was buried but rather he was functioning as a prophet and foretold the day that Jesus would come and rise from the dead and make it possible for us, therefore, not to be held by death, but we shall rise like he rose and never see decay. And this is in the Old Testament. And for good measure, he throws in another quote from Psalm 110, verse 1, again proving that David was not talking about himself, but about the Messiah who was going to ascend to God's right hand and give the promised Holy Spirit which they've just experienced. Now, that's quite a sermon that Peter gave. What was the response of the people? Look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So these people who have just heard the gospel in their own language they want to know how to respond. And Peter says two things, repent and be baptized. Repenting means a turning away. It's a turning away from the sin of your old life, but it's not just a turning away from something. It's a turning towards someone. This is why Peter says that we need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism is not baptism if it's not in the name of Jesus. If you repent and turn away from your sin and towards Jesus in faith and are baptized, your sins are forgiven. They're wiped clean. And more than that, you will receive the promised Holy Spirit to enable you for God's kingdom work that He has planned out for you. And this promise is not just for you who are standing here. It's for future generations like your children. And it's not just the people here. It's for all who are far off who God is going to call to himself. It's for the nations, everyone whom the Lord God will call to himself. Our last big idea is that wherever the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit saves sinners. 3,000 souls were baptized on Pentecost. And trust me, that was a great day. On this day when the Jews celebrate wheat harvest, it was than any of them could have ever imagined. But it's a great day when just one sinner repents, isn't it? When just one person is baptized. When just one soul is saved from the crooked generation. And just like that, the crowd responded when they heard Peter, and we are called to respond as well. We are called to repent and believe, if you haven't already. You are called to be baptized, if you haven't been before.
If you haven't been baptized, you should be. Why wait? We've got the baptismal broken down in the back. We can fill it up. My condo has a pool. We'll barbecue afterwards. <laughs> or better yet, X will barbecue afterwards, shaking his head. This is why we only baptize people who can make a profession of faith, because of passages like this. Because the gospel requires a response. Maybe you have responded to God in faith, and you have been baptized. Praise God. But you know what Peter says? With many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Who in your life needs to hear the gospel from a witness of Jesus? Who in your life needs to be exhorted with the truths of the gospel? Pray that God would give you an opportunity this week to do that. That somebody who needs to repent and be baptized can hear the wonderful works of Jesus from you. And be confident. Be confident that the power to do this, it doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from us. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit that enables us to do this wonderful work. We just have the privilege of being a part of it in God's plan to take the gospel to all people and to all nations. All we have to do is to be faithful and reap the harvest that God has planted for us. I'll conclude with a prayer from Edward Benson. O God, who on the day of Pentecost did send down tongues of fire on the heads of thy holy apostles, to teach them and lead them unto all truth, giving them boldness with fervent zeal to preach the gospel to all nations. Raise up, we pray, thy power and come among thy people. And with great might, assist and support us. Bless, O Lord, all thy servants everywhere. Give thy Holy Spirit to all who teach and all who learn. Send forth men and women full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, mighty in the Scriptures and able ministers of the New Testament. And upon the seed of thy word sown by them, pour down, O Lord, the continual dew of thy heavenly blessing, that it may take root downwards and bear fruit upwards to thy honor and glory and to a joy, joyful ingathering of a spiritual harvest of souls at that great day of the harvest, to glorify thy holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord, world without end. Amen.